بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والعاقبة للمتقين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين فقد قال الله تعالى في القرآن المجيد والفرقان الحميد بعد أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم وأعدوا لهم ما استطعتم من قوة ومن رباط الخيل ترهبون به عدو الله وعدوكم وآخرين من دونهم لا تعلمونهم الله يعلمهم وما تنفقوا من شيء في سبيل الله يوفى إليكم وأنتم لا تظلمون وقال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم من رأى منكم منكرا فليغيره بيده فإن لم يستطع فبلسانه فإن لم يستطع فبقلبه وذلك أضعف الإيمان صدق الله مولانا العظيم وصدق رسوله النبي الكريم ونحن على ذلك لمن الشاهدين والشاكرين والحمد لله رب العالمين My dear respected elders, brothers and friends In every era, in every time In every situation, in every circumstance When a Muslim, when a believer Is faced with some challenge, some difficulty, we always look to the Qur'an for direction and for guidance. Whatever the case, whatever the scenario, we will find a solution, we will find guidance in the Qur'an or in the Sharia. This is indeed a great blessing of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we have answers to every problem that we will face till the day of Qiyamah. We have solutions to every problem that we will be faced with till the day of Qiyamah. In the Qur'an, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala encourages us, instructs us to be prepared. What does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala state? وَأَعِدُّوا لَهُمْ مَسْتَطَعْتُمْ مِنْ قُوَّةِ وَمِنْ رِبَاطِ الْخَيْلِ Prepare yourselves against the enemy using any military capability available to you, cavalry available to you. And the objective is what? The objective is, is to instill fear in the enemies of Allah and in your own enemies. This instruction, this encouragement has no time limit on it. Wherever you are, whichever time you live in, this instruction is for you and I to prepare ourselves against the enemies of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What does this tell us? It tells us that number one, the first thing we have to do is identify the enemy. Muslims and believers living in every era, in every time will always have opposition. You will always have an enemy. At times the enemy may be in front of you, there may be physical battle and physical combat. And at times it may be passive. So our brothers that are fighting on behalf of the ummah, they are engaged in combat physically. On the other hand, we are not in that position. But we are still faced with an enemy. And that enemy is trying their level best to wipe out Islam, to wipe out the Muslim ummah, to wipe out our beliefs and our structures. If we ignore the enemy, if we do not identify the strategies and the tricks and the ploys of the enemy, then they will succeed 
in wiping out and defeating the Muslims. We see this throughout history. When Muslims became oblivious to the enemy, they let the guard down, the enemy took advantage. And the Muslims were always put at a back foot. But when the Muslims were alert, when the Muslims were aware, when the Muslims were at their best, they did not have an opportunity to wipe out the Muslim name, the culture, the religion in any way. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is giving us this instruction. The question I ask you, my brothers, my elders, have we prepared ourselves for the enemy? Are we prepared for the enemy? It does not necessarily mean that you need to go out tomorrow and engage in physical combat. But the facilities that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made available to us, are we taking full advantage of it to counter the narrative, to counter the bias, to counter the lies, to counter the deception, the tricks and ploys of the non-Muslims? Are we taking full advantage of it? While on the other hand, the Zionists, the Jews, they have taken full advantage of it. And up till now, up till recently, it played in their favor. Until the Muslims took an offensive, then they were put in a back foot. And the bias, the lies, the deception are now exposed and have become more exposed than ever before. So, we see there's two types of battles taking place. The one in the, in the, in the battlefield and the one on the internet, on the web, on media. We see the pressure that it, it has put on governments. We see the pressure that it has put on societies. And it, had made, it has made them question certain decisions that they are making. This is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is referring to in the Qur'an. Any form of power that you can gather, that you can get, that is what you need to do, obviously, within the confines of the sharia. So we need to ask ourselves, are we doing and are we doing this? Are we taking full advantage of it? Allah's Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa mentioned that whenever you see some oppression, some evil, then you have a first duty. The first duty is what? Stop it with your hands. If you have the ability to do so. If you don't, the second level is use your voice, use your tongue, use your faculties, use everything that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given you. Are we doing that? Are we using this to speak out against the, the oppressor, the occupier? Are we doing that? If not, then we need to educate ourselves. We need to step up and we need to speak out against these things. In the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has promised dominion, has promised state, has promised the bounties of this world to the Muslim ummah, which we all want, we all desire. That Muslims are right at the top of everything. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put two conditions. وَلَوْ أَنَّ أَهْلَ الْقُرَىٰ آمَنُوا وَاتَّقَوْا لَفَتَحْنَا عَلَيْهِمْ بَرَكَاتٍ مِّنَ السَّمَاءِ That if those nations of the past, they believed in Allah. True belief, trust, loyalty in Allah. Whatever Allah says, I listen to. Whatever is the Islamic belief, I believe. Without question. And... Taqwa, fearing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at all times, in business, in transactions, in family relationships, etc. What, what is the promise of Allah? لَفَتَحْنَا عَلَيْهِمْ بَرَكَاتٍ مِّنَ السَّمَاءِ وَالْأَرْضِ Allah will open the bounties of the skies for you and the bounties of the earth for you. Everything will be open for you. You want victory, Allah will give it to you. You want dominion, Allah will give it to you. You want state, Allah will give it to you. Allah will give everything to you. 
but Allah is only asking you for little. Iman and taqwa. Not just Muslim by name, but true belief. Not just fearing Allah outwardly, but inwardly. I don't do things to deceive others. I do things to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If you look at the annals of history, and we take lesson and derive lesson, we see that there are certain individuals that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed with his bounties. And they fulfill this condition of what? Of iman and taqwa. A great person, a great legend, a warrior of Islam, a military commander, a ruler of the Muslim world, king of Egypt, Syria, Iraq, and the broader Muslim world, Khadimul Haramaini Sharifay, the custodian of Makkah, Mukarramah, and Medina Munawwara, the custodian of Masjid Aqsa, the liberator of Masjid Aqsa, Salahuddin Ayyubi Rahimahullah. Allah blessed him with his bounties. He was born 500 years after Hijra. He was not born in the golden era, the first 300 years of Islam. He was not a Sahabi, a companion of Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He was not a Tabi'i, someone who saw the companions of Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He came later. He was a regular person like you and I. But he took up the challenge. He persevered. And Allah gave him everything. So, 532 years after Hijrah, he was born. He passed away 589 years after Hijrah. He lived for a total of 57 years. That was his lifespan, and that is how long he lived. From the beginning, from the start, he knew aqidah and beliefs, Islamic creed is so important. It's the foundation of everything. If your Islamic creed and beliefs are in order, then everything else will be in order. If it is corrupt and incorrect, everything else will fall out of place. Imam Qutbuddin Esaburi, rahimahullah, prepared a book on aqidah and beliefs just for Salahuddin. Salahuddin was not a scholar. Salahuddin was not uh, educated in terms of Islamic sciences. Yes, he learned later on. And he was surrounded by the ulama and the fuqaha. So he pre- prepared for him a book on aqidah and Islamic creed and belief. And he took a keen interest in it. He studied it himself. He taught it to his children and his children even memorized it. In terms of his salah, he never missed a salah. When he was sick and he was in, uh, he was afflicted with this illness, he would not leave out the salah and he would ensure that his salah is performed in congregation in jamaat and he would appoint a specific imam to lead him in that salah. In the night when he would awake, if he woke up in the middle of the night, then he did not lose that opportunity, he would wake up, perform wudu and engage in nafil salah. Otherwise, he performed it before the fajr salah. When he passed away, although he acquired large amounts of wealth, property, and huge amounts of assets from all over the world, the Muslim world, when he passed away, he only left 47 dirhams and one gold terian piece. That was it that he left, a very small amount. They say the amount that he left behind did not even reach the zakat nisab. In other words, the ruler of the world, the Muslim world, had nothing left behind when he passed away. Didn't even reach the zakat nisab for him to actually pay zakat. Zakat was not even compulsory on him to pay. Why? Because everything that came in his possession, he made sure that it went elsewhere and it reached the pockets of others before it reached his own treasury. When he came to Quran, he loved listening to the Quran-i Kareem. When he would sit in his tent 
two to four chapters of the Qur'an would be read to him. When he was in public audiences, one to twenty verses of the Qur'an would be read. And every time the Qur'an would be read, his heart would soften and tears will come, come down his face. He was so attached to the Qur'an. On one occasion, he was passing by and he heard a, a, a boy reciting Qur'an to his father. He loved it so much, he summoned the boy and he summoned the father. Some food that was left beside him, he gave it to that son, he gave it to that boy. And then he made waqf of some property to that father and son out of joy and love for the Qur'an Kareem. It is said that he had so much love for hadith, he would recite, he would read the hadith himself. Ibn Shaddad, his contemporary would say that he was told to bring books to him and he would recite hadith to him and Salahuddin would recite hadith himself. So much love for hadith. When he was in the battlefield, standing in the front rows, rallying the, the, the people of the army, the Muslims, he would go on his horse from the right flank to the left flank, the first two rows. And he would have a person appointed to recite hadith to him in the battlefield. That was his love for hadith. And the Muslim states that even though the numbers of the enemies would increase, he did not flinch whatsoever because this would support him, this would encourage him, and this would keep him firm in the battlefield. His justice was such, every Monday and Thursday, he would hold a council, there was an open door policy, anyone that had a complaint, whether it was scholars, whether it was judges, whether it was men, whether it was women, whether it was the young, the old, he gave every single person a hearing, and at the end of the day, during the day or during the night, he would sit with a scribe, and then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would inspire him to write some judgments, and he would write judgment for everyone that he listened to, and every case that he listened to. One of the things, uh, the favors that he did for the ummah at the time, the, the Fatimids ruled at that time, and they had taxes and levies for everything. So, what he did, what was his mission? His mission was to abolish all these taxes. There were taxes for every small and big thing. There was even a tax for drinking water from the river, river Nile. He abolished all these taxes. Another tax that he abolished and made it easy for the ummah is that the hujjaj and the mu'tabirin that would travel for umrah and hajj, there was a levy to be paid. There was a tax to be paid to Makkah, Mukarrah and Madinah, Munawwara for its upkeep. What was it? It was seven and a half dinars, a large amount of money. So he abolished it and he told them that, listen, I will pay you that full sum that you would receive at the end of the year. Remove these taxes and those taxes were removed. His generosity was such that he conquered large pieces of land. And without any hesitation, he would give away provinces to people that asked him for it. So on one occasion, he conquered the, the city called Amit, Diyar Bakr. And a person by the name of Qara Arsalan came to him and asked him for that province. And without his hesitation, he handed over that entire province to him. The world did not concern him. He said on one occasion that if a person comes to me with the entire world, with everything, it would not concern, concern me in any way whatsoever. On the other hand, if that person, that same person came to me and asked me for something and I emptied my treasures for him, I would be embarrassed that it would be insufficient for him. I would be embarrassed that he had to actually ask of me. He had no concern for the dunya whatsoever. When you talk about iman, when you talk about taqwa, these are the personalities, these are the individuals that we look at. An estimation was done 
on the number of horses that he had given out over a three-year period. It was estimated that he had given 12,000 fine horses in sadaqah and charity from whatever he owned, from whatever he possessed, and from whatever he gained. That was besides the horses that he replaced in battle for those people whose horses died in battle. So if a person was out in battle, he was fighting, his horse died, he would replace it from his own treasures, from his own wealth. Besides that, 12,000 horses he gave in sadaqah and charity. The world did not concern him. In terms of fighting in the path of Allah, everything that he did was in line with jihad. He spent every dirham, he spent every dinar, he spoke about it, he shared his thoughts about it. The troops that surrounded him valued his input and his military strategies. He dedicated his entire life to it. Ibn Shaddad says that I wrote a book for him on just the topic of jihad, covering all the aspects of it and the responsibilities of it. He took a keen interest in it, he learned it, and he even taught it to his children. On one occasion, he's in the battlefield, and from the enemy lines, from the enemy side, a non-Muslim woman comes forward, she is crying, she is distressed, she is brought in front of Salahuddin, Salahuddin is taken away by her distress, he asks, what is the reason? So she complains and she says that the Muslims came on our side and they took my daughter away. They captured her and they took her as a prisoner of war. I was told that if I come to you, you are my only hope and this is the only way she will be released. Please help me, please assist me. So Salahuddin, he sends out scouts to the marketplace and he gives them instruction that go and find this girl, go and find this daughter and free her as soon as possible within the hour. The girl is found, the, she is freed, and then she is brought to this woman, and she is extremely grateful to Salahuddin. In the midst of war, in the midst of battle, a non-Muslim woman, look at the compassion, look at the generosity of Salahuddin. On one occasion when Jerusalem was taken by Salahuddin, and he was in, uh, the, in Jerusalem itself, it was obviously fortified, and the French had come, and the English had come, and they made a firm resolve on taking back Masjid Al-Aqsa, on taking back Jerusalem. And Salahuddin heard about it, he was concerned, he turned to the Amirs, he turned to the people around him, and he made mashura with them, and he asked them what to do. Many of them said, you go out, and we'll stay in to protect the city. Immediately he understood that if he had to go out, they, no one would remain in the city, and this was due to the fear of the large numbers, and they were going to take them and corner them and attack them. So Salahuddin was perplexed. He rested, he relaxed. It was the day and the morning of Jummah, Friday. His contemporary Ibn Shaddad is with him. Ibn Shaddad tells him after the Fajr Salah is performed, that why don't you perform your ghusl of Jummah? Why don't you go to Masjid Al-Aqsa? And on the way, give some charity secretly. And in between the azan and iqamat, make dua, Allah will not let you down. He was referring to the hadith where Allah's Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa said that no supplication is rejected between the azan and the iqamah. So Salahuddin takes Ibn Shaddad's advice. He proceeds to Masjid Al-Aqsa and he does this between the azan and the iqamah. And Ibn Shaddad says, he just started this and they started receiving reports that the French, the English are now changing their minds and are now retreating. That Wednesday comes 
and they receive news that the enemy has retreated. Ibn Shaddad says this was his connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Whenever he was faced with a dilemma, whenever he was faced with a challenge, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala came to his help. Salahuddin had a plan. What was his plan? His plan was to unite the Muslim ummah and then take Jerusalem. So what he did, he unified Egypt, he unified Syria, he unified Iraq. He got them all unified and then he proceeded to take Jerusalem. This was his plan, this was his strategy. Even when it came to taking Jerusalem, the first thing he did was he went to the shores of Jerusalem to fortify that area so that when he takes Jerusalem, there are no reinforcements that come in through the sea and then uh, you know, reverse the taking over of Jerusalem. So the ulama, the fuqaha, the mujahids from the entire Muslim world flock and gather after they hear Salahuddin taking the cities around Jerusalem. They knew that the conquest of Jerusalem was imminent. Huge scholars from around the Muslim world come and join this battle, this fierce battle that is about to take place. Salahuddin then proceeds with his army, proceeds to the walls of Jerusalem. He sees the walls of Jerusalem in front of him. He comes with all his siege engines, catapults, etc. Twelve large siege engines. There's huge rocks there. And he uses that and he gives instruction that those boulders must be used to bring down the fortress around Jerusalem, to bring down the walls around Jerusalem. So on the 21st of Rajab, Salahuddin is there in front of the walls of Jerusalem and the fight starts, the battle starts and the attackers gradually back and forth try and proceed towards the walls of Jerusalem. Now at that point in time, Jerusalem is occupied by how many people? 60,000 horsemen besides women and children. They instruct every person 16 years and above, give them a weapon, go on the tower, fortify the tower, go onto the walls of the fortress, fortify that area and then attack the Muslims should they come forward. A fierce battle breaks, breaks out between the Muslims and the defenders, the Christians, the crusaders. And on the 24th of Rajab, on the 24th of Rajab, Salahuddin gives instruction that the, 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 in, there must, the, the, there must be intensity and there must be increase in uh, throwing those boulders against the walls. This happens and then the attackers make their way towards the walls of Jerusalem. And Allah made it such that they penetrated the walls of Jerusalem. They put wood, they lit the wood and the, the wall blew up and it created a pathway for them to enter Jerusalem. Now once they penetrated, the Christians, the crusaders immediately knew that listen, there's no way around this here. The Muslims have penetrated. We are not going to get out of this. So they retreated to their churches. They retreated to their, their houses, etc. They made mashura amongst themselves and they sent a representative. The representative comes forward and says that listen, we will hand over the city to you in return for our safety. Salahuddin refuses that proposal, refuses that, that, uh, that proposal that was put forward and he says that no. Like you took the city 88 years ago. Jerusalem was uh, occupied in that time for 88 years. So he says, like you took it away from its original owners, we will not take Jerusalem away from you except by the sword. And Salahuddin took an oath that I will take Jerusalem by the sword. So the representative is despondent. 
and he says, and he provokes Salahuddin, and he tells him that if you do not give us safety, we will kill our own woman, we will kill our own children, and we will kill 5,000 Muslim prisoners that we are holding captive. And we would not allow you to take any one of them as prisoners of war. Salahuddin perplexed, he turns to the Amirs and he makes mashura. And they tell him that, listen, if you put conditions down on them, then it would be as good as you taking the city by the sword. So the ulama advise him, the fuqaha advise him, and he puts conditions. He says that, listen, I will give you your safety, provided that you hand, me, hand the city over to me, and you vacate the city within 40 days. Whoever vacates the city needs to pay a ransom. The ransom for men was 10 dinars that he put down, for women 5 dinars, for boys 4 dinars, for infants 1 dinar, and for the poor and destitute, he put a lump sum of 30,000 dinars. He says, whoever pays that amount within 40 days, you are free to go. If not, you are a prisoner of war. Salahuddin then enters into Jerusalem. The first thing he does is what? Restore Masjid Al-Aqsa to his original position. The Dome of the Rock has a gold cross on it. He instructs that it be removed. Masjid Al-Aqsa, they put toilets and bathrooms in the Masjid itself. They put their houses and buildings as part of Masjid Al-Aqsa. He instructs that all of it be removed. They had images and features of Christianity in Masjid Al-Aqsa. He instructs that all of it be removed and restored to its original position. This was done. One week later, one week later, the fourth of Sha'ban, the first Jummah takes place in Masjid Al-Aqsa after 88 years of occupation. After 88 years it takes place. And who does he appoint as the Khatib? He appoints the Khatib Ibn Zaki. Who is Ibn Zaki? Ibn Zaki is that person who wrote a few lines of poetry four years before Jerusalem was taken, predicting and foretelling that Salahuddin would take Jerusalem and conquer Jerusalem. So he gives him this honor, he appoints him as Khatib. He comes to the mimbar, and the first verses of the Quran are recited. That first Jummah takes place. What does he recite in that khutbah? فَقُطِعَ دَابِرُ الْقَوْمِ الَّذِينَ ظَلَمُوا وَالْحَمْدُ لِلَّهِ رَبِّ الْعَالَمِينَ That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has uprooted the oppressors, the occupiers, the aggressors. وَالْحَمْدُ لِلَّهِ رَبِّ الْعَالَمِينَ And this is only the glory, the mercy and grandeur of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The entire khutbah is recorded on what he said at that, at, on that day. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made him victorious. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave them Masjid Al-Aqsa. Ulama, fuqaha from all the, uh, all the parts of the world came. And then they started to make Umrah from Masjid Al-Aqsa to Makkah Mukarramah. Why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give them this victory? Why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give them this honor? It is because they displayed true iman. They displayed true taqwa and fear in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that He restores Masjid Al-Aqsa in Jerusalem to its original owners. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to grant victory to the Muslims that are fighting on behalf of the Muslim Ummah. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to free Masjid Al-Aqsa from the oppressors, from the aggressors and from the occupiers. Wa akhiru da'wana anilhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.